Good morning. My name is Dan Kent. Uh, this is, I, I got so wrapped up into coming up, okay, what do I have to do? This goes there. I forgot there's real people here. That's so great. This is my first time back with real people, and wow, it's, it's so exciting. Thank you. It was so good seeing so many of you again as well. However, uh, the CDC has recommended new mask guidelines, and so I did put this back on today. And uh, I, I got to tell you, it was kind of heartbreaking at first. I felt very bitter that I had to wear this stupid thing again. But then I just had this thing in my head. Like I felt like Batman coming out of retirement <laughs> to fight the Joker one more time and finally beat the Joker. That's, that's, what I, that's how I thought about it. So Greg always says the imagination is our most powerful tool, and uh, that's definitely the case here. Well, hey, listen, we've been working on the Sermon on the Mount for a year and a half, and we've been on this little uh, section of text for about six weeks. And it's Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. And I get the honor of closing off the section, and I'm super excited about that. And I want to start off by sharing a little life hack that I've been using my whole life. And uh, whatever success that I have is partly related to this little life hack. And this is no extra charge. I'm just going to give this to you. What I like to do is I like to set everybody's expectations about me really low. <laughs> because then it's easier to impress them, okay? And, uh, and so with a low bar, it's easier for me to jump over. But today, I'm turning over a whole new leaf. I'm going the opposite direction. I'm raising the bar. I'm raising the expectations in a sermon that I call the perfect sermon. Pressure is on, okay? The pressure is on. Now, let me be clear. It's probably not going to be the perfect sermon that you're going to hear today, okay? But it will be the, quote, perfect sermon. And what I mean by that is I get to talk about Matthew 5.48. And Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what I want to do is I want to talk about what does Jesus mean by perfect here? Uh, because that sounds like a pretty radical expectations that God has given us to us. So that's why this is the perfect sermon, because I want to look at that. And I, I, I got to tell you, I'm just, I'm so excited about this sermon that I, I can hardly contain myself. And uh, when Paul Eddy proposed us doing a Sermon on the Mount series, like the very next second, I had my hand up. Like, I want to do Matthew 5.48. I want to do Matthew, I'm like doing this thing, you know, I want to do it, I want to do it. And some of you were in the meeting, so you, you can verify that. But you see, it's just that some verses, and you probably have these verses in your life too, but some verses, they've hit you in a certain way and you've had to wrestle with them and they've played a big role in your theological development and maybe in your spiritual walk. And, and that's been the case for me with this verse. And, uh, and, and not only me, but in the church itself, this verse has played a big role in a very contentious part of our church history. Uh, and so today, in fact, I, I wrote a, a paper about this and there was a huge kind of conflict in the late 300s, early 400s between a person named St. Augustine, he's the hero, and Pelagius, he's the villain, okay? He's the heretic. So this is how it played out. There was this hero and this heretic. And, uh, and I wrote this paper almost 20 years ago in seminary, 2002, and it is Pelagius, my favorite heretic, Okay? Um, and it's so funny, I got an A minus. <laughs> I, I deserved an A minus because as Ken says, Ken was the TA, Ken Reinhut, it was a brilliant guy. Uh, he says this, Dan wrote an excellent essay, but did not follow the assigned guidelines. <laughs> and, and, 
I got to tell you, Ken, you didn't know this, but that totally encapsulates me as a person. That is exactly, that's going to be on my, my tombstone. Dan did a good job, but did not follow expectations. That's, that's basically me. Um, in fact, he even says that uh, we asked for no title page. And, and I knew that they asked that, but there's this drinking song of Pelagius from the 1900s that I wanted to include that, and so I needed a title page to do that. So anyway... So I've been thinking about this verse and this story for a long time, and, and partly because this story is so baffling, it's so intriguing. So just, just hear this out. So Jesus says to his disciples, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. One guy hears that and says, yes, Jesus is our teacher, Jesus is our Lord, uh, I am going to take this seriously, and this guy, he sells all of his possessions, and he dedicates his life to trying to live up to this expectation, and, he, and trying to help other people live up to this expe- expectation as well. This guy gave it all to take this verse seriously. Now, he's the hero, right? Wrong! He's the heretic! The hero is the guy who says, no, 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 we can't take this verse seriously. We shouldn't take this verse seriously. In fact, uh, he dedicated the end of his career to getting rid of Pelagius and anybody who followed Pelagius. And, and so the hero is the guy who said, no, we, we need to tame this down a little bit. Well, isn't that strange? Isn't that like a bizarre thing in church history? What the heck is going on there? And I want to talk a little bit about what's going on there because I think it will help us understand this verse today. Because a lot of the forces that guided Pelagius and Augustine are still around today and are still affecting our interpretations of this verse. So, let me tell you a little bit about Pelagius. Pelagius was not an academic, really. He wasn't even officially part of the church. He was just this guy who was on fire for God. He loved Jesus, and he just sold his possessions and dedicated his life to Jesus. And he wanted to really genuinely help people be more Christ-like. But in order to do that, he had to assume that people had the capability to do that. People had to actually live that out. They had to have that power to be able to do it. And so they had to have free will. And so for Pelagius, free will and human capability, it was at the heart of everything that he believed. Plus, he was living in the late 300s, early 400s. And this is about 100 years after something called the Edict of Milan. In the Edict of Milan, Constantine basically said, okay, enough with the Christian martyrdom. Enough with killing these Christians. Let's, let's have a new tolerance for the faith. And that's great. Martyrdom ended. And over the next hundred years, Christianity actually became pretty popular. Churches started to get planted. Coffers started to get full of money. People were converting to the faith. But the problem for Pelagius is he saw it was harder to tell Christians from non-Christians the new tolerance for the faith sort of watered down the faith. A hundred years ago, it was easy to tell if you were a Christian because you were willing to die for it. It was really easy to say, man, that guy, he, he had faith. You know? But now it was hard to tell. And I tell you, if you've ever felt that, like you can't tell Christians from non-Christians, then I think you can empathize with Pelagius there. I think you can empathize with what was kind of guarding, uh, guiding his heart there. And so when Pelagius reads, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, he's like, yes, we need to take this seriously. This is Jesus calling us to be distinct from this conformity soup that is secular society. This is Jesus's command 
implying that we have genuine say-so. We have the ability to do whatever Jesus teaches. And in the spirit, in the froth of all of this excitement about our free will and our capability, Pelagius hears this quote from Augustine. And it's a weird quote. I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. Augustine basically says, whatever happens is God's will and I desire whatever happens. And this quote just like set Pelagius off because where's the free will in that? That's just fatalism. And Jesus is not a teacher of fatalism. And so Pelagius just started writing these pamphlets and arguing that we got to stop this guy because he's, he's teaching fatalism and powerlessness. And so Pelagius just kind of, you know, took it to himself to go after Augustine. Well, Augustine, you see, was coming from a totally different perspective. From Augustine's perspective, he saw this tolerance for the faith and the growth of the church, he saw that as evidence that God was changing the world. It wasn't perfect, of course, but look at how much more godliness is in the world. And, you know, yeah, it was tidy to know, you know, who was a real Christian and who wasn't by looking at the martyrs, but that was horrific and evil. And what's more godly than stopping martyrdom? And, and so Augustine sees what Pelagius is doing. He's like, Pelagius is trying to reverse all of this progress that God is making in the world. He wants everybody to be in a monastery off in the woods where they could pursue perfection. He wants martyrs again. And, and Augustine's like, no, we don't need that anymore. God is making some big progress in the world. And we're not going to overthrow that now. In Augustine's mind, free will wasn't important as much as grace was. What we need is grace. That's what we need. The last thing we need is false hope in our ability to live perfect lives. What we need is we need to understand our incapability because it's then that we understand the importance of grace. So Augustine reads the verse, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And he says, yes, we need God's grace. Jesus isn't giving a literal command here. Jesus is setting this ridiculous expectation so that it's obvious to us that we can't meet it and then we go for God for grace. And so that's how Augustine would read this. In fact, what Augustine argues, and this is what eventually got uh, Pelagius condemned as a heretic, is he said, if Pelagius is right and if we could be perfect as God is perfect, well, then we could save ourselves. And what would the point of the cross be? And that was a good argument. And so for Augustine, he said, let's celebrate our incapability, not our capability. And so just to tell you how the story ends, uh, Augustine, in his power, he was a, a, a bishop of North Africa, and he brought Pelagius before these two councils to have Pelagius condemned as a heretic. And he just assumed, well, th this is over now. And, but it wasn't. Because the councils heard Pelagius, and they're like, there's nothing that this guy says that's not biblical. And so they acquitted him. Well, now Augustine was just in this furious tantrum and he goes to the Pope and says, listen, this guy is a heretic, I know it. And, and, but he's also a smooth talker. So we need to have a new trial where he's not allowed to defend himself. And <laughs> the Pope agrees to this. And his name is Pope Innocent, you know, whatever. But, so the Pope agrees to this and so they have this new secret trial and of course Pelagius is condemned as a heretic and he lives the rest of his life in exile and basically on the run uh, for the rest of his life. And what's really fascinating about this, there's a lot of things that are fascinating about this story, is, is, but for me, how two prominent church leaders 
can come from the same text and leave with such radically different conclusions of what this text means. And, and it really shows that how important what we bring to the text is to what we get out of it. For Pelagius, he was bringing human capability and free will to that text, and he saw this as something totally different than Augustine saw. When Augustine came to it with grace and, and God's graciousness and, and our inability, they came away with two totally different things. And I got to tell you, in 2002, when I wrote Pelagius, my favorite heretic, I was, um, I was wrapped up in this as well. And, and I think for me at the time, it just seemed like there were so many obstacles in life. And it's so hard to be the type of person you want to be. And it's so hard to achieve your goals. And, and it just seems like the world, even though life is hard enough as it is, the world sets up so many obstacles and they, they spend so much effort telling you that you can't. And there's so many reasons why you can't. And, and even the church, a lot of times, will talk about the things we can't do. And for me, and maybe it was some ferocious ambition in me, or maybe it was some glimmer of hope in me, but I really connected with, with Pelagius' teaching that we can. And, and I really got kind of got wrapped up in this, and, and, and I really kind of learned a lot about Pelagius. Uh, in, in, in my mind, it just seems like a no-brainer. If it's possible, like the Gospels say, that when I meet my maker, that my maker might say, well done, good and faithful servant. It just seems like a no-brainer to me that there must be something that I can do and that I can do well. And so I, I, was, I, I was kind of trapped. Like, how do I reconcile all of this? Um, well, looking back on it now, I think that Pelagius and Augustine and myself, I think we missed the whole point of Jesus' teaching. We weren't even close to what Jesus was talking about. And, and, and the problem is, is that we got stuck on the wrong word. We got hypnotized by the word perfect. That, that word perfect, oh, that, that just jumps out at us. And, and we start to ask the wrong question. We began bickering about, is it possible for a person to be perfect? Is it possible for an individual to be perfect? And that's the wrong question. The word that we should have started with is therefore. That's the word that we should have started our assessment with. Because therefore is a logic word. It's, it means that what is about to be said is the conclusion of what came before. The word therefore says this, what I'm about to say, is connected to everything I've just said. That's where we should have started. Because if Pelagius and Augustine and myself, if we would have understood this and if we would have started with therefore, we wouldn't have bickered about whether or not an individual could be perfect because Jesus was not talking primarily about individuals. Jesus was casting a vision of perfection that's way beyond any one individual. It's beyond myself. The perfection that Jesus is teaching isn't about Dan. It's about something that Dan is a part of. Uh, it's, it's a communal, it's a collective, it's like a corporate perfection. That's what Jesus is talking about in this verse. God's not eager for us to be martyrs. That's not what God cares most about. What God wants is unity. That's what God wants. That's what God desires. What Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5.48, I will argue, is that he is calling us into something like perfect unity. And that's the term that's used in the New Testament. And that's why the teaching up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount is primarily about how we treat one another. It's about how we get along with one another and, and how we view one another. And how we view one another and how we treat one another culminates in this section of text that we've been going over the last five weeks 
with this radical love, even to the extent that we love our enemies. Really, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.48, it's the same vision that he casts in John 17. John 17, this is the NASB translation, uh, verses 20 to 23. He says, he's praying to God for his disciples. And he says this, I'm not asking on behalf of these disciples alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. We're the ones who believe in Jesus through their word. So he's praying for us already 2,000 years ago. He says, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. The glory which you have given me, I have also given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfectly united so that the world may know that you sent me. What Jesus is saying here, this vision that he's casting, suggests that the perfection that he is calling us to comes through relationships. That's the direction that the perfection comes. We tend to think of, well, once I get myself all figured out, then I'll go out and have good relationships. But what Jesus is saying, now that's the wrong way. You need to work on your relationships and grow in the context of that first. In fact, in this passage alone, you see that this is so different than, than what we learn about relationships already. Uh, he, he, he talks about that they may be one, the disciples, and those who believe in me through them. That's us. So this oneness transcends time because the oneness that Jesus is praying for is for us and his immediate disciples. That's how other this relationship is. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But I just want to say that, that the Apostle Paul, he casts the same vision in Colossians. He says this, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, that's us, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are all interpersonal virtues. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave. And over all of these virtues, and the same thing as in the Sermon on the Mount, put on love. And what does that do? It binds them all together in perfect unity. Uh, The virtues complete in this special kind of love that Jesus also talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And the Sermon on the Mount also culminates in this same love. And what does that lead to? Perfect unity. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does call us individually. He calls us individually to behave in a certain way to think of others in a certain way, and to like, orient ourselves in a certain way. And so we do have this individual responsibility, but the goal is not individual. The goal of it all is social. Uh, much of the work I do might be personal, but the objective is interpersonal. That's the objective. But I think it's more than that. <laughs> already that by itself, I think for a lot of people is is a good paradigm shift. And I think that that's a good reset for how to look at this passage and maybe even how to look at our lives. But I'm telling you, I think that it goes even deeper than that because uh, what Jesus is teaching here is not simply this relationship, this perfect unity. It's not simply something that individuals do together. That's not simply what it is. It's it's bigger than that. Uh, And what I'm about to say and what I'm about to talk about might sound funny to a person like myself who has grown up in an individualistic worldview. And, and Oshida and Cedric have talked a lot about this, and, uh, and, and so I recommend listening to what they've said as well. But from an individualistic per- perspective, man, it, it can be hard to really grasp what the Bible is going to teach on this. In fact, I'm so individualistic. I mean, I'm like, 
single child individualistic, <laughs> single mom individualistic. I'm so, I'm so individualistic, like when I read Batman comic books, if I saw Robin in there, I would stop reading. Batman should be able to do this himself. I, I don't want nothing to do with Robin. Let's just look and see, let's see what Batman can do, you know? That's how individualistic I am. And I'm telling you, uh, my individualism is a burden and it's, an, it's a stumbling block for understanding what the Bible is saying here. But when I get glimpses like this, it is so radical and I just want to share this with you. You see, from an individualistic perspective, the assumption is that what's real in a relationship are the people. That's what's real. And, and the relationship is just this thing that these real individuals do. It's individuals do this relationship. Uh, it's, it, I think of it as me and all of my relationships. That's how I think of it. Uh, I don't think that the relationship is a real thing. It's just this ethereal thing that happens between people. But what the Bible teaches is that's not right. The Bible teaches is that the relationship itself is a real thing. It's just as real as the individuals. In fact, it might be even more real than the individuals. That thing, it's, it's, it's a separate entity that's created between uh, the two people. It's not simply my relationships. It's rather this thing out there that's been created that I can be a part of. And that's a totally different way of looking. It's a, it's a totally way, different way of understanding what a relationship is. And, and I look at this and how I've viewed relationships my whole life as just this thing that individuals have. And that's, that's just a weak sauce understanding of relationship compared to what the Bible teaches. And I imagine Satan saying, oh, you want relationships? Oh, we got tons of relationships. We got relationships coming out of our ears. We got plenty of relationships for you. But it's not the perfect unity relationships that the Bible talks about. It's, it's not the relationships that God is calling us into. It's these weak sauce relationships that we have in the world. It's not the profound, life-altering, agape love relationships that we are called to. Uh, the Bible argues, I think, that relationships are a real entity separate from the individuals. We see this going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, we're told, had this one flesh relationship. And it's not like they were like attached at the side as gelatinous blobs. You know, they weren't physically one flesh. Rather, there's this one profound oneness that was created between them. Maybe you've experienced a taste of this. I, I hope you have because I think it's, it's the most powerful thing that we can be a part of. Uh, Robert Sternberg is a uh, psychology academic. I think he taught at Yale. And he, uh, he did a lot of individual counseling. He did a lot of premarital counseling. He did a lot of marital counseling. And Robert Sternberg, he was struck by this kind of odd experience that he would have every once in a while. And what it was, was that sometimes when he would have a couple in the office with him, it was as if there were three people with him, not two. And, uh, and so like he would know if Todd and Margot come in, let's say, he would know Todd, Todd's this kind of person, and Margot's this type of person. But when Todd and Margot are together, it's almost as if there's this third personality there. And, uh, and this is very squishy to a scientist like Robert Sternberg. And yet, even though it was squishy, he was so convicted by this experience that he ended up dedicating a large portion of his career trying to figure out what was it that created this kind of entity, this third person there. And, uh, and I wish I could go into some of the details of his research because it's fascinating, but I'm just going to give you the spoiler so we can move on. The thing that creates this oneness between the couples 
it looks suspiciously like what the Bible calls agape love. It's very much exactly agape love. And agape love is this very special kind of love that the Bible teaches about where we have this uh, other-oriented love for people, where we care about people that we're even willing to maybe even make sacrifices for them. And it's different than like romantic love, where romantic love, you find someone you fall in love with and you just fall in love. It just happens to you. Agape love is chosen. It's something that we commit to. We might not have any feelings at all, but we commit to it. And that's the special love that that God is calling us to. And, and I think what Sternberg says is it's that which creates this entity between people uh, that he has experienced in counseling. And, you know, we can feel this entity, this real relationship in a lot of different circumstances. I know that grief counselors will a lot of times talk about uh, the two griefs that you have to go through when you lose a spouse. So if I were to lose my spouse, the first grief is that I would have to grieve them, that they're no longer here. But the second grief is that I would have to grieve the us that's still there. The us is still there when the spouse dies, but it's different. It's, it's not experienced the same. And I have to grieve that the us between us is not the same anymore. And, and, and so there's the two griefs. They both have to be grieved separately. And notice too that in those situations, the relationship outlives the individual. And and if you've lost someone you love, you know that there's this thing still there and your heart still beats in rhythm to it. That's how real this relationship is. And the church too uh, has this sort of uh, transcendent entity that can be created when we love one another the way that God calls us to love. Uh, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, the body of Christ. That's this real thing that we all can be a part of uh, when we live in agape love relationship to one another. John says in 1 John that this thing, this uh, transcendent entity is so real, in fact, that when we are a part of it, uh, that is actually Christ's presence with us. Christ's presence dwells in that uh, entity that is between us. And I believe that we were made to live in the context of this kind of relationship. We're made to live in the context of this agape love community, this, this transcendent entity. And so the closer we get to it, the closer we live in it, I think the more we are naturally healed, uh, the more we are secured, and the more we are enriched. And that's why, and this is partly a confession, uh, that's why I've really appreciated our new tagline. I didn't like it at first. Our new tagline is learning to love together. And I got to tell you, I, I thought it was a little corny at first. But now, over the last few weeks, I think that there could not be a better tagline than this. I am all about this tagline because this is what it's all about. Learning to love together is what it's all about because it's in learning to love together that we can find this perfect unity. And the together part is central. That is key because perfection comes through relationships. And so the together thing is absolutely key. If you think you're perfect and Most people don't, but let's just say that you thought you were perfect, but you are also holding broken, unhealed, unreconciled relationships. According to Jesus, you're not perfect. And you're not perfect if you're alone because perfection is relational. The perfection God calls us to is interpersonal. Um, And inversely, and this is to me super intriguing, in the context of perfect unity that Jesus is calling us to, you can totally screw up. I mean, you can screw up a great deal and you can sin, and you can just absolutely stumble in your life, and yet still remain in perfect unity. In fact, 
sin and screw-ups, really, that's all an opportunity for the body of Christ to show off. <laughs> that's all. It's, it's an opportunity for the body to show off its compassion, its empathy, its forgiveness, its encouragement, and all of that stuff. In, in this peculiar type of relationship that we are called into, this peculiar kind of community, I may not be perfect, but we can be. Which I think is just super profound. And if this is all right, and I'm, I'm still wrestling with a lot of this stuff, but if this is right, the therefore in the passage, therefore, if that means that this is the conclusion to what Jesus is saying, that this perfect unity is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount up to this point, well then, what would it look like to take that conclusion back through the Sermon on the Mount? And I think when we do that, I think it opens up the Sermon on the Mount in a really fascinating way. So I'm going to just give you a couple examples. So Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry at his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The goal is perfect unity. That's the goal. Now, murder definitely finalizes disunity. <laughs> I mean, that's a finalization. That's the nail in the coffin, literally. But what Jesus is saying is that disunity starts much deeper than murder, right? Way deeper than that. Jesus says, you have heard, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully already has. The goal is perfect unity. Now, adultery definitely finalizes disunity. But what Jesus is saying is that disunity starts much deeper than adultery. Jesus says, You have heard it said, Fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath in all. Simply say yes or no. The goal is perfect unity. Now, you'll never get perfect unity if people don't trust you for who you are. If people don't trust your character and your history and your witness— it's never going to work. And so you're never going to have perfect unity unless you're trusted. So stop making these oaths on other things. Just be trustworthy is what Jesus is saying. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. The goal is perfect unity. Retaliation always perpetuates disunity. Finally, Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The goal, what is it? What's the goal? Perfect unity, that's right. The goal is perfect unity, but hatred always sabotages all potential unity. Jesus goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own, what are you doing different than anybody else? In other words, what he's saying is that, look, yeah, the world does some pretty amazing things. And we've got some cool technology, and I like my iPad. And right now, we're sending billionaires to space. And I don't know what good that does anybody, but it's pretty neat. It's pretty fascinating. And, uh, but for as many cool things as the world does... The one thing the world can't seem to do is create unity. <laughs> no matter how many politicians uh, talk about unity, no matter how many peace summits we have, we just don't have unity. And so what Jesus is saying is that perfect unity, we have to go way beyond what the world does. We have to go way beyond what we see around us. We have to be radically different than what the world uh, tells us. So my translation of this verse is pursue unity even as your heavenly Father is perfectly one. Uh, these teachings and commands through the Sermon on the Mount, they're not about individual accomplishments. They're not. They're not about being good boys and good girls. They're not about any of that nonsense. 
What they're about is becoming the types of people who are compatible with this very peculiar kind of community that we're being called to. It's, it's about being compatible with perfect unity. And so normally when I do a sermon, I like to have two or three takeaways, but really there's only one takeaway with this sermon, and it's a big one, and that is to pursue unity. And, and that means a lot of stuff. But at the very least, I think what it means is that we can't only focus on our own individual growth. Uh, we can't just focus on making ourselves stronger. We also have to focus on making our relationships stronger. We have to heal broken relationships to the best of our ability. Uh, and we can do this narrowly or broadly. We can do this with those, the people close to us, our, our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, or more broadly in society, we can learn about people that we don't know much about. Um, we can learn about people who might not uh, have it so easy in this country. We can learn about people who have been oppressed. We can learn about people who are refugees and who have different cultures than us. And so there's a lot of different ways that we can start to uh, develop bridges and heal relationships in this. But at the same time, we have to pursue this perfect unity, which is so idealistic. And we have to do that, I think, without getting too utopian about it. <laughs> and that's the temptation, is you see this and you see how profound it is, and you can get butterflies in your eyes really easy. And the reality is, and Cedric and Oshida and Greg all kind of nailed this point, it's not easy. This is, this is advanced discipleship. This is next-level kingdom work. It's, it's tough. When I'm working on individual stuff, man, I have a lot of control over that. I can decide, you know what? I'm going to have a Bible study every morning at 6 a.m., and I have total control over that. And I can do prayer time right before I go to bed. And maybe I'll do imaginative prayer during my lunch hour. And I have all that control, and I can see what happens. But when I move to relationships, that is exponentially more complicated because I have no idea how other people are going to react to me. Now I am in like this pinball machine and there's a lot of other pinballs and I have no idea what's happening. It's a much more complicated sort of thing. And we've talked about a lot of things that help. And there's a lot of people who, you know, it's easy to have unity with. There's people that we have in our lives that we just click with and we connect with. But there's a lot of people that we don't. There's a lot of people that, that just rub us the wrong way or maybe we just don't like. And, and there's those people as well. And we've talked a lot about over the last few weeks about different ways of maybe kind of working with that stuff. And we talked about how learning a person's backstory really helps. And I think that's super valuable. I think that's a, a key uh, tactic. Um, Cedric did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about the importance of understanding the systems that we live in. And a lot of times how we act toward one another is the result of the system that we have inadvertently lived our lives in. And so understanding those systems can also be really helpful. But I think, just to round this all out, I think there might still be people, <laughs> even if you knew their backstory, even if you understood the system, that you would still have a hard time loving uh, and, and, and this came to me uh, and, and Barbara when we were walking our dog last week. And we were walking Ellie. She's just this cute, cute little white dog. And, and she leaves these little Tootsie Roll-sized poops. Just cute, cute as ever. But someone else in the neighborhood, they have a dog that leaves like king-sized Snickers poops. Okay? And they just leave the poop there. And they just leave it there. And so Barbara, bless her heart, a lot of times ends up picking up the poop for this person. And in her mind and in my mind, it's like, I don't care about this person's backstory. Pick up your poop, you know? It's not that complicated. It doesn't matter if you were neglected as a kid. You can still pick up the poop, you know? And so what do you do about people like that where you know their backstory, you know the systems, you get it, but still pick up your poop, right? <sighs> for me... For me, the story of the prodigal son really helps. Uh, 
because here's this story where you have this dad and he's got these two sons and one of his kids gets crazy eye. I mean, just gets absolute crazy eye. He wants his inheritance. He wants to live his best life now. Dad sees this and says, son, that is profoundly stupid. Why would you go and take your inheritance now? But dad sees that he's got crazy eye. And I've had crazy eye before. And I know there's no stopping people when they have crazy eye like this, okay? And so dad says, all right, fine. Here's your inheritance. And sure enough, the son takes the inheritance, goes to Vegas, lives it up, squanders all of his money, right? And look what the dad does in this situation. The dad waits. The dad waits. He waits with openness and without judgment. He just waits in the hope that maybe his son would recognize the futility and the emptiness of his living. And he just waits in the hopes that his son might come back. I believe that sometimes, if the backstory doesn't work, if understanding the system doesn't work, sometimes we just have to wait for our enemies like that. We have to wait and, and hope that we might be able to come back together at some point. Plus, there are some people who we can't be present with. There are some people who might be dangerous to you. Uh, maybe you're in an abusive relationship. Uh, sometimes you just got to stay away. Sometimes that's part of the ultimate healing is to just stay away from people. But that doesn't mean we don't have a respons- uh, responsibility in the matter. Uh, just because they may choose not to be in this relationship, that doesn't mean that we are not still connected with that transcendent entity between us. We can still be responsible to that. This is why when we see Jesus, it's so profound that he remains in this perfect relationship with his disciples, even when they all abandon him at the end. He still remains oriented to this relationship, to this transcendent entity. And what's really cool about this is that it really puts power in our hands. Uh, Because, you know, otherwise we could just say if someone rejects us or if someone continues to live in ways that we think are evil or whatever, if they keep leaving poop on the lawn, you know, what do we do? Do we just say, oh, well, I guess love doesn't work. No, that's not what we do. What we do is we stay in perfect relationship with them and we wait. We wait with openness. We wait with openness and without judgment. And not only that, but we also wait with openness to maybe we're the problem. <laughs> maybe the reason why they're leaving the poop there, I don't know how that would, could be related to Barbara and I, but maybe there is. And, I, and as radically and bizarre as that would be, the reason for this, I don't know what it is, uh, I have to at least be open to the fact that maybe I'm contributing to this. Maybe the part of the reason why they're so overwhelmed with apathy is because I never say hi to them when they drive by. I don't know. I mean, there could be something there. And, and so we have to be open and without judgment. And, but that, you know, that doesn't mean that love is always going to work and there's always going to be these kumbaya moments. I think a lot of love is just waiting like this uh, with openness and without judgment. You know, it's so weird seeing the Augustine and Pelagius story because Jesus in Matthew 5.48 talks about this perfect unity. And in debating this verse, Pelagius and Augustine demonstrate the exact opposite. (laughs) I mean, they couldn't be a better model of the opposite of what Jesus is saying. But despite that, I think that Augustine was right. That church cannot be just some monastery off in the woods where we all pursue personal perfection. I think he's right about that. It has to be something that we do together. But Pelagius is also right, I think, that that even though I might not be able to be perfect, I have to believe in my capability to have perfect unity. I have to believe in my capability and my say-so to be able to have these perfect relationships because God calls us to it. 
I just want to leave with one thought here. And uh, we have, I, I, I'm part of the refuge here on Thursdays. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to meet during the pandemic. But um, uh, over the pandemic, we lost one of our regular attenders. His name was Clyde. Super cool guy. Does anybody here know Clyde? Oh my goodness, there's like 40 hands up. Yes. Yeah, Clyde was such a cool guy. And, and he, he passed away over the pandemic. We had his celebration of life just a couple weeks ago. And something that I shared there has just been really kind of front and center in my mind. And, and that's this. There's a difference between a life that ends and a life that completes. And I've just been, I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, because everybody's life will end. <laughs> All of us will have a life that ends. But not everybody's life will complete. And I think what Jesus is teaching here shows me is it gives me a guide to what does it mean to have a life that completes. And my life will complete, I believe, to the extent that I develop these types of relationships with people. And man, I saw that with Clyde. The, the impact that Clyde had, and he wasn't like a boisterous guy by any stretch of the imagination, and yet he had so many people who were just so deeply moved by his life, including me. He just, he gave me so much encouragement and so much confidence uh, in the work that I did at the refuge. And, and I look at that and I'm like, that is sort of a glimpse of what it means to have a life that completes. Uh, having, you know, the houses and stuff is fun, but that all ends. But according to the Bible, this transcendent entity, this agape love community does not end. It persists even when we are not here. I just want to close with a quick prayer. And uh, so if you will join me in that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. And as we all kind of wrestle with your word and as we all wrestle with our own spirits, I just, I just want to pray that uh, the culture that we were all born into, the culture that we were all raised in, I just want to pray that your spirit can help us demolish the obstacles to understanding the power of your teaching. And, and in this particular teaching, Lord, I just want to pray that, you know, if there are broken relationships and unhealed relationships in, in our lives, I pray that you show those to us and help us reconcile those relationships so that we can all move just a little bit toward this perfect unity that you are calling us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. If you have any prayer requests, uh, we have uh, people who can pray with you here and we also have uh, online prayer. Uh, if you are thinking about coming next week and you want to register your kids, please reserve a spot during the week so that we can anticipate what's, what's that's going to look like. Also, if this sermon was interesting to you, we have uh, online gathering groups where you can talk more about it. And plus, uh, Shauna was our host today, and Shauna and I will be on the MuseCast on Tuesday. And really, this is sort of like MuseCast Live. That's what this was today. Uh, but on Tuesday, we're going to talk more about this sermon, and I'll probably read the drinking song of Pelagius as well on Tuesday. So thanks, everybody, for your attention, and uh, thank you so much for being here.